Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is November the 21st, 2019. This is episode 2552 of the Survival Podcast. 2552. 11 years and over 2550 shows and we are still here and we are going to be here for a hell of a lot longer if I have anything to say about it and Last I checked, I'm the one that gets to say whether we're here or not. It is a Thursday, and it is time for a listener call show. This is where you call the Think Line. That number is 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK, and leave me a message. The other option is you can use the Think, uh, I'm sorry, the Speak Pipe, and you can do that just by going to survivalpodcast.com and click on the uh, contact uh, link there, and you can uh, find the button for the Speak Pipe that way, and just mash that button, and you can use your phone. You can use any Internet-enabled device with a microphone. Leave me a message on the speak pipe. It'll come to me as well. In fact, I have been kicking around the idea. I haven't made up my mind yet, but I've been kicking around the idea of getting rid of the think line. I, I, I feel compelled not to because I've been saying it on the air for 11 years, damn near, and plenty of you know it by heart and skip introductions, but we live in a different world than we did in 2000, actually 10 years, 2009 when I brought the think line on board. Um, it is an expense, and we now live in a world where everybody has an internet-enabled device with a microphone. And the um, the speak pipe is a flat rate of nine bucks a month. And a lot of people call the think line and give me a lot of information that doesn't really belong on the air, and I pay by the minute for that. <laughs> so um, I've been thinking about eliminating the think line. I'd like to know from the all that call in. Would you use the speak pipe if the 800 number doesn't exist? It still isn't that much money, but I mean, it's 50 bucks a month I could put back into the budget of the show instead of paying for a service that, um, that isn't needed. The question is, is it wanted? That, that's what it comes down to. It's, it's, it doesn't matter how I get you guys' information audio to me. It just matters that. So is it wanted? If it's wanted, I'll keep it around. I'm not going to make a decision until after the end of the year. But if you have an opinion on this, you can email me, comment on today's episode, whatever. I'd like to know about it. Anyway, here's what we got on the Think Line this week. We have um, a question about CWD infection in deer and elk, moose, things like that. Um, a question on moving away from California, and this one specifically might move to Idaho, but where to go in general and thoughts on, well... People, wherever you go, not being particularly fond of people from California. Uh, I'll talk about that. Uh, a guy asked me a question I get so often, and it's not hard. I'm on keto or I'm on low carb. What the hell can I store? And practice eat what you store and store what you eat. It's, it's, again, it's really not that hard. Um, another question on health and diet. Um, how concerned you should be about mercury in the fish that you eat? And I'll tell you why. It's, it is a concern, but it's not as big a concern as some people make it out to be. Question on, would I ever sue via turkey? Would I sue via turkey? More importantly, would I do it for Thanksgiving if I'd never done it before? I bet you can guess the answer to that one. It's no, but we'll talk a little bit about what I may or may not do if it comes to sous vide and turkey. Um, I got a caller with some lighting options for indoor growing. There's a little difficulty understanding some parts of this call, but I'm going to play it anyway. And I got a question for a guy on training a cat. Cat jumps up on people and climbs people like a tree with little kitten claws going in your body. 
cat jumps up on things like the dining room table. You don't want the cat up there. Well, you know what to do. Use the Spirico Universal Discipline Tool for animals. Completely harmless and painless. Spray bottle. This guy put it this way. He said, I have a defective cat. Doesn't care. Likes to be sprayed with water. We will talk about all of that and more in just a moment. Before we do, let's hear our quote of the day today. Uh, my quote of the day today comes from Ralph Waldo Emerson. And the quote is, To be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make you something else is the greatest accomplishment. While it might be a great accomplishment, while for some reason due to the need for conformity that's been wired and programmed into the human mind by society, it really shouldn't be seen as an accomplishment, in my opinion. I really don't see it as an accomplishment. I see it as a necessity if you are to truly be happy in this world. An accomplishment is something that's actually difficult to do. Climbing a mountain is an accomplishment. Um, you know, uh, winning an award, maybe, if it's worth winning anyway, is an accomplishment. Uh, achieving a career goal is an accomplishment. Being yourself is normal. A normal. We've turned normal into an accomplishment because it's become so regular to behave in an abnormal way. I just finished, I mean actually finished, wrote the last words in the new book coming out, Jack's Laws of Life, or 16 Laws of Life, or whatever we end up deciding to title it. And in that, at the end of this, I write a conclusion. So it's 16 laws with an intro and a, and a conclusion. And in the conclusion, I say that, Well, I can't tell you what I say, but I say that if I did what I you know, say I didn't do, that I would be fake. And I give a bonus law. I give a bonus law. Always be authentic. And the reason I say to always be authentic is the only way you will ever truly be happy. And if you say, well, if I'm authentic, then these people in my life won't want to be in my life. Then you need different people in your life. If I'm authentic, then I won't be able to live this particular career path. Then you need a different career path. Whatever you say you will lose by being authentic, you probably need to lose. Now, let's not... See, I hate the nitpick people. They're like, well, what if you're a psychopath? Well, then you have other problems. Okay, Assuming you are a decent, moral person like the vast majority of people in the world, then the number one way you can stay decent and moral is to live live authentically. That is the number one way that you can stay off, stay happy. And the number one way you can achieve achieve your dreams. Because if you achieve success while behaving in a way that is inconsistent with the authentic you, whatever success you create will be a success for someone that you're not. It's not an accomplishment. It's a prerequisite for happiness. Be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make you something else. And you will find the path toward the life you truly wish to live instead of the one somebody else designed for you. With that, um, let me remind you before I take the first call. Hey, I've got a sale going on an MSB. It's Turkey Day next week. We're going to talk about Turkey in today's show. So discount code is Turkey. You know you've wanted to be an MSB member. You know you've thought about it and said, do I really need to give Jack 50 bucks a year? How about 30? How about this? 30 bucks a year. Use the discounts, and you know you save $50, $150, something like that over the next 12 months. But I'll tell you this. If you're like, I don't know, sign up, use the discount code, spend your $30, bucks, go look at it. 
if you, after you log in and you look at all the discounts, and you think, nah, I wish I didn't do this, email me, put TSPC in the subject line, tell me when you signed up in your username, I'll give you your money back. Uh, I've had that pretty much as, a, as a, a standard forever. I've had people email me and go, I bought this last year, and I just wish I didn't do it. And here's your money back. Now, I did have one guy, he was a member for six years, he wanted all his money back. I, I do have to make solid business decisions. But if you join and you just don't like it, I'll give you your money back. I've always been willing to do that. I haven't had to do it very often. With that, let's get into it. Uh, we got a question here about CWD, also known as chronic wasting disease in deer, elk, and moose, etc. Hey, Jack. Ben from Pennsylvania, a long-time listener. Quick question. I'm a long-time hunter up here, and with CB, CWD a disease among deer on the rise, What are your thoughts about uh, eating the uh, meat? Should I uh, cut it up, get it frozen, and get it tested first before I eat it? Or do you think that it's uh, another one, uh, things are blown out of proportion? Uh, let me know, Jack. Thanks for all you do. Bye-bye. So here's my general level of concern about if I kill a deer and eat it, that I'm going to die from CWD prions in my brain, causing my brain to turn into Swiss cheese. If um, my concern that the government will do something stupid in the next 15 minutes were 100, and my concern that a meteor will fall out of outer space and land on my head in the next three seconds was a zero. My concern that I will contract CWD by eating a deer that I kill and cook in my, in my own home um, is about a two. That acknowledges that it's possible, but realizes that there's a lot of other shit that we do all the time which carries far more risk, like driving in a car, getting on a train, eating shellfish. Raw shellfish. I think it probably has a greater level of risk that something could happen to you than getting CWD from an animal like an elk or a deer or a moose. Now, what I will say is when we talk about disaster probability, we always acknowledge the other side of it, which is impact scale. So the problem is if you get CWD, which is basically the deer and, deer and moose version of mad cow disease, you're going to die. And there's nothing anybody can do for you. Here's the other side of it, though. The total number of human beings to ever contract CWD is zero. None. Zero. Zero. Like the same number I used for the concern that right now there's a meteor. Nope, didn't happen. Wait, there. Nope, that was an airplane. Okay, so I'm good. I'm safe. The, the meteor didn't get me. And, and I'm not saying that getting a, a transmission of CWD to a human host is as unlikely as a meter, meteor hitting you on the head in the next second. But it's, it's down there in the area of probability, and here's how I know that. Scientists did eventually get uh, macaw monkeys to contract CWD. Primates, of course, are closer to humans than any other species, but they didn't do it chimps, right, or something that's more analogous to a human. They did it with little macaws. Um, now, on top of it, that research was done like well over a year ago, 
and it hadn't yet been peer-reviewed. And when the article came out about it and people started freaking out, they acknowledged it hadn't been peer-reviewed. But we got to share this right away. What I haven't actually been able to do is read that study and the methodology behind it. So I don't know exactly how they were able to get these little monkeys to contract this disease. Because to be fair, if you were a scientist researching this, um, you're not going to give it to a human being because that would be unethical. So uh, a monkey would be your, your best test subject. And the first thing you'd want to determine, is it even possible? Not what are the risks, not, you know, under what circumstances. Is it possible at all? So the first thing you would do is do whatever you could to make the damn monkey contract the disease. To somehow have the prions, these little things that can't really be killed, start showing up inside the monkey and eat his brain. It sucks for the monkey, but that's what you would do. So you would do something like directly inject the monkey or purposefully give the disease to something like a deer and take it to the extreme and then feed the monkey massive amounts of the meat. You wouldn't, you know, take a deer that naturally had it tested for and say, oh, here's an opportunity cook the, the monkey a nice little steak and feed him two or three meals a week of this stuff and see if he gets it. You would do something like, oh, I don't know, shove spinal, you know, spinal cord uh, down the monkey's throat somehow. You know, make him a spinal, a raw spinal cord smoothie or something like that because it affects the neurological systems and the nerve systems and bone marrow and stuff like that at a higher concentration than it does in the muscle. Of course, we're concerned with people eating the muscle, which is, you can get mad cow from that, but in all the years that this has been on the radar, with millions of deer being shot a year, and those deer all being eaten in various ways, from biltong to roast and everything in between, we've had exactly zero cases of human beings contracting it. And so I believe if the transmission from deer to human through ingesting meat in an animal that looks healthy, was possible, we'd had at least one by now. I should say was probable, was even probable. I'm not saying it can't happen. Maybe somebody with a weakened immune system that eats a deer with a certain concentration. You know, The one thing you do need to accept about this as a risk, if you're going to undertake it, which, again, I think it's about a 2 on the 1 to, one, the one to 100 scale, um, is that... You can't get rid of it with cooking. The temperature at which the prawns are killed. So people are like, well, I can't believe you ate rare meat. I will, I cook my deer meat well done, so I won't get CWD. Won't do anything for you. Sorry. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. The temperature you would need to get prions to, to kill them, which really isn't possible because they're not really alive. It doesn't work that way. It's a, it's a weird thing that I won't get into right now. You'd have to destroy them. You don't kill them, you have to destroy them, and they have to be incinerated. And the temperature's so high to do that, you wouldn't have anything left to eat. So the fact that there, there is no, it's not like, it's not like trichinosis, where if we eat raw pork, or pork cooked to 125 degrees, it's bloody, we can transmit trichinosis. But if we get over 142 degrees for more than X amount of minutes, you know, all the trichinosis is, is dead. And therefore, people cook their pork, so the fact that you don't generally see people get trichinosis from pig anymore is because we know to cook it. You still cook it rare, by the way. It's 142 degrees. 
I don't remember how long, but it's not very long. <laughs> um, that's why we don't have that. But we've had human cases of trichinosis from the consumption of pork. I'm back to we've had none from deer and moose and elk. And I'm going to tell you, there's a certain segment of society, we call them vegans and vegetarians, but vegans more than vegetarians, who want any bad press about eating meat to be true. So they hype and over, you know, overuse it. And with the days of social media and stuff like that, they can make a story that's a very small story and a great big one. If you really want your meat tested, I think most State game departments will do a test of the meat for you. There's a certain lymph node that they take from the animal or, or something. You can contact your game department and find out what the procedures are, and that way you can go ahead and have it tested before you actually eat any of the meat. Me, I'm going to continue my tradition. When I kill a deer, I eat some piece of it that day. I'm telling you, if I get back to deer camp and it's dark and cold, some piece of that, You know, maybe the belly flaps come out and get cooked like skirt steak on the grill or something. Some piece of it gets eaten that day. And I'm not going to change that. Because, again, I don't see it as impossible. I see it as improbable to the nth degree. But you have to make that choice for yourself. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. It's Jesse in San Diego. Long time. Hey, uh, good news is I finally convinced the wife that we need to get out of California. Uh, my question, though, is what are your thoughts on Idaho? She has some friends there and has her heart set. And uh, i just kind of curious what you think of Idaho is a place to move to and or you have any better alternatives. Um, anyway, thanks. Um, I seem to notice there's a lot of anti-California sentiment uh, as far as uh, people wanting to move out of California into other states. Um, what are your thoughts on this and the best way to deal with it? Anyway, thanks again. So let's start out with the anti-California sentiment. I find that one to be a little bit more universal and interesting because in the end, where you choose to live is something that's highly personal, and it should be. Well, let's start out with anti-California sentiment. Like California has more people leaving than I think any other state in the country right now. And most of the people leaving California, guess where they're coming? Right here to Texas. And if you think they have some anti-California sentiment up there in Idaho, boy, you ain't been to Texas. Now, maybe downtown Austin is one thing, but Dallas-Fort Worth, and as you move outside of Fort Worth and Dallas proper both uh, to the, uh, the, the what do we call the mid-cities and the, uh, the, the, the all these little cities that exist around here, Dallas-Fort Worth is a hard thing to understand if you've never been here. We have literally... You know, dozens of cities that are significant in size. Like some of our, I guess you'd call them sub cities within the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex are on the, still on the list of like the largest 20 cities in the country. And they all have their own personality. They all have their own culture. There's a definitive difference. Anybody that's lived here can tell you when you drive from the Dallas side to the Fort Worth side, there's, there's, it's, it's like the Fort Worth side is when you get into real Texas. Not, there aren't real Texans on the Dallas side. And I don't mean the cities. Again, I'm talking about all these towns around here. And the more you get out of the downtown area, the more you get in any part of Texas that's not downtown Dallas, downtown Fort Worth, downtown Houston, downtown Austin, or downtown San Antonio, as a Californian, you're going to hear these words. Do not California or Texas. But I, I'll tell you what. Texans, and I'm going to guess Idahoans because I don't live in Idaho. I've only ever been there once a very, very long time ago. I don't think they have anything against people from anywhere. 
what they don't like is the idea that people would so come to loathe where they are that they would leave that place, go somewhere else, and bring the very thing from a political standpoint that ruined where they were to where they're headed to. So I, the thing that would make me not worry immediately about someone from California is if you said something like, boy, I, I'm glad I left there and I have no desire to go back or make any place I go to anything like that place. And I'd leave the voting and politics out of it because, <laughs> to me, if you really don't want to change the place you're in, don't vote. Leave it alone. We don't need any more new things. Um, Texas is a more free state than California in a lot of ways, especially from a business and tax standpoint. Um, California has some advantages too, though. I, one, I guess, would be weather, and two would be uh, property taxes. There's no doubt property taxes are lower in California because was it Proposition 25 or Proposition 125 or something like that where they locked and they can only go up so much. Um, Texas has high property taxes. That's the one big tax expense in Texas is property tax. So every place has these trade-offs. So I think when you look at where you're going to go, you need to be thinking about what am I getting and what am I giving up. But this also makes me think about a chapter in my new book where I talk about sometimes you need to separate yourself from people. And for young people, sometimes that, and it's for a totally different reason, but sometimes that means leaving where you grew up. You know, I grew up in a small coal town, and there's some good things. I've talked about my town growing up and some of the good things about it, and in some ways there's a stronger sense of community there than there is where I live now, in a real way. But for a teenager, there wasn't any opportunity at all there. If I stayed there, then today I would probably be, I don't know, managing the floor of an aluminum fabrication factory or something like that. And be considered a great success for doing so. And, you know, still be working swing shift in my damn near 50 years of age and, and what have you. And in order for me to have more of what I wanted in my life and have opportunity, I had to go somewhere. And I could have gone anywhere. I was in Pennsylvania. I could have went to Philadelphia. It was only a few hours from home. It would have been much easier for me to bail out and go back. I came to Texas, and the number one reasons that I came to Texas were two. One was the economy was really strong, and I knew that. So that meant with no skills, I could get something right away and begin building my life. And two, I had a friend here. And those two things together meant it was an opportunity. It wasn't the only opportunity, but it was an opportunity. So I think the number one thing that you should look for when you decide you want to go somewhere else is where are the opportunities for me? Professionally, socially, economically, right? What, and, and, and for lifestyle. With those in mind, where are my opportunities? And make a list of those opportunities at each location and judge the pros and cons of them. I'm going to tell you that your wife is correct in a way that having friends in a place that you go to, makes moving to a place and finding your feet there a lot easier. But it also only does so much. What do you guys do professionally? Are you going to be able to find jobs? You can have the greatest friends in the world, but if your friends are into, um, I don't know, they're auto mechanics, and you're an aerospace engineer, they're not going to be very much help in finding you a job. 
They're going to be helpful in finding friends, which might help you find a job, but they probably don't know any aerospace engineers. And is there any call for aerospace engineers in, in Coeur d'Alene? I don't know. So you got to look at the opportunities professionally as well as socially as well as lifestyle, right? And, and, and if you're a politically-minded individual, how do the politics fix things as well? If you're religious, you want to look at, you know, Your houses of worship and things like that. We've done whole shows on you know basic strategic relocation, and those are the things to look at. As far as the California bias, there's a couple again a couple things. Number one, if it comes up, tell people you have no desire to turn the place you've arrived in into the place you left. Uh, number two, don't bring it up. I, I think that's the number one thing you can do to avoid that sort of uh, oh you're not from around here is just don't bring it up. Don't talk about it. And don't use phrases like, well, back in California. Because you know what I'm thinking when I hear, well, back in California, why aren't you on a train or a plane or a bus and on your way back to California? And, see, I don't think that's going to be an issue with you. I think you've wanted to get out of there for a very long time. And I think that there's two types of people that leave California or any state that's engaged in the stupid behavior California's in. There's the people that get fed up with it and leave. And there's the people that leave because their company folds Or their company's like, I'm going to move our headquarters to Frisco, Texas, or Plano, Texas. Right? I'm gonna, we're going to move our headquarters. And they move with their job, or their job moves and doesn't take them with them, and they go, well, i got to find a job. And when they go looking for a job, they find in a strong economy like Texas, they can find a place to work. And it's the people that move for their job that tend more than often to drag their politics with them. Of course, there's some overlap, but more than often. And the people that move because I don't want to be there anymore tend to not. So, you know, if you ever have to have a deeper conversation with somebody, go there. But just know that a lot of that whole, uh, you know, whoa, you're from California, shit like that, that's people's bullshit. People are good on bullshit, and people are big on hazing newcomers, no matter where you go. When, when, when Keith Snow moved to Montana for a while, some of the stories he told me, the locals were telling him about grizzly bears and shit, I'm like... Oh, my God, they knew you were a Flatlander when you got there, Keith. Just don't listen. Just let it go. It's no, no, you don't need a three thirty eight to kill a grizzly bear that's going to climb in your house and eat your kid. Just relax. They told you that because they knew you'd believe it. <laughs> anyway, with that, let's take another one. This one on keto and food storage. Hey, Jack, this is Joe from Lindenhurst, New York. Got a question for you. What kind of food can I store if I'm on a keto diet. Background. My wife and I are both on a keto and low-carb diet, and I've had to think that uh, how would I change my food storage so I can be prepared with a food supply. Since I mostly eat meats and vegetables now, I'm trying to figure out what I can save uh, that's canned. So my question to you is, what do you store in your cupboard or in your pantry? Because I believe in using the rotation method. So what else besides canned tuna and canned chicken and those lovely canned mackerels that you speak about do you store in your pantry? Thanks. Uh, let's start out with why this is even a thing. This is a thing because wheat berries, beans... Rice, dried potatoes, pasta. 
But that's the only reason this is even a thing. Because people look to those five dry staples as a way to store a lot of calories. I guarantee you the person that does so does not not consume meat and fat and vegetable. And they also don't not have storable versions thereof. So what you do is you just follow the credo, eat where you store and store where you eat. No more to it than that. So how can we store meat? We can can it. So you can get into canning, learn how to do pressure canning, and you can pressure can meat. We can make biltong. We can make cured meats and dry sausages, jerky. There's all kinds of salted meats. There's all kinds of ways to store meat. We can buy meat that's already canned. Though most of it leaves something to be desired, but if we just need to put some up, we can do that. We can turn to canned fish, especially like the canned mackerel that I recommend from Wild Planet. That Atlantic mackerel is fantastic, really low in mercury. We'll save that for a question coming in a bit, um, compared to like top predator fish as well. Tastes fantastic. Uh, but you have all different types of canned seafood. You have all different types of canned meat available. But the number one way we store meat in America is with what? A freezer. A freezer. But, Jack, when the zombies come and, oh, my God, oh, my God, get a bag of salt and jerk all the meat if you have to when the zombies come. Get a generator and get a chest freezer or some sort of a deep freezer and get reserve gas and if the power goes off for a week run your freezer for a couple three hours a day cover it with moving blankets and you will be fine that's what you store you store what you're eating you're eating meat put it in the freezer and get a means to back up instead of backing up the food with food that doesn't need refrigeration back the food up by backing up the refrigeration method that's number one number two Vegetables are a primary source of your diet. Probably the most nutritious method of storing vegetables is a freezer. So learn to blanch and freeze vegetables and buy frozen vegetables. And more and more options are coming up where you can get frozen vegetables that are also organic if you're not growing your own. And the deals at Costco are worth the price of a Costco membership. Um, some of the things that I found at Costco in their freezer section, that are organic, are half the price of conventional product at a regular grocery store. And I'm talking everything like strawberries, which, yes, are keto, as long as you keep the quantity down. Um, zucchini noodles. I was kind of skeptical of zucchini noodles. I was like, well, zucchini hold up to being frozen as a noodle and whatever. They make great noodles. They sell a huge bag an individual packaging of zucchini noodles for about the price of one, maybe two packages of fresh zoodles in the produce section. And it tastes just as good. Uh, rice uh, cauliflower, they have a uh, organic rice cauliflower, huge bag of that for next to nothing. Broccoli, all that stuff. They have all that stuff at Costco. I'm not... You know, saying to get Costco tattooed to your ass or something like that, but it's, it's something to look into. And if you don't have a Costco around you, 
um, maybe a Sam's Club. And I don't know what they have because I don't shop Sam's Club. I, I patronize Costco. Um, so you, you store vegetables. But your number two most nutritious way to store a vegetable is dehydration. Get a dehydrator and dehydrate vegetables. Your number three will probably be canning. So you can either can vegetables or buy canned vegetables. So none of this is hard. And I don't mean to like oversimplify it, but I just want you to start thinking about what do you eat and realize that most of, most people that are out there storing like ass loads of beans and rice don't eat ass loads of beans and rice. They're doing it because it's cheap and easy. Now, if you really believe there may come a day that you have to go six months to a year living on gruel to survive, then here's the good news. Things like wheat berries and white rice and dry beans can store for 25 years. If you really have enough concern that you want to have that kind of longevity, then go store a bunch of that shit in five-gallon buckets. Get yourself some. They'll go on sale here in about another month, the hand warmers, the little ones that come in a bag, the hot toes and whatever, that little bag with a picture of fire on them, those things. They're O2 absorbers. Those are They're the same thing as the O2 absorber you buy. They work the same way. They have iron filings inside the little little baggie and they have a, um, a chemical in there that causes the iron to rust really fast that's how it makes heat it's also how it absorbs oxygen rust is iron oxide so the iron bonds with the oxygen when this happens slowly you get something ruined or you get nature's loctite as some people call it um, but you don't get much heat When it happens really, really fast, you get heat. That's why they use it for hand warmers. It's exactly the same thing inside the hand warmers. There's no chemicals that are going to kill you or nothing. Okay, So you take one of those, you open up the little bag it comes in, shake it up, toss it in the bucket, put the lid on it. Don't ever expect that lid to come off. You're going to have to cut it off. So either do that or get yourself one of the gamma lids if you really want to spend a little extra money and store up your beans and your rice and your wheat berries. And inside a five-gallon bucket that way, they will last longer than you will. And then you will have that reserve of, of calories. When we went keto, we went low-carb, we didn't get rid of all that stuff. We still have it. It'll probably, like after I die, somebody will be like, what the hell is this? But if we ever need it, it's there. So that's what you do. Number one, get a deep freezer and get a generator capable of running other things in your home plus the deep freezer and store gasoline. Then patronize stores, buy halves of beef, whatever, to have large quantities of meat on hand and the ability to keep your freezer working for weeks. Then add frozen vegetables to that mix. Then if you're growing vegetables, learn to dehydrate, can, and blanch it and freeze your own vegetables. Right? Then learn how to um, can meats if you really, really need to. And then add long-term storables that fit that profile like canned mackerel, And, and good quality canned tuna and canned salmon and things like that to your stores. And if you really want to store up some fat on the cheap, throw some spam in the shelf. It lasts for damn near ever, too. With that, let's go ahead and take another one. Uh, this is one on fish and mercury poisoning. Hey, Jack. This is Zach from North Carolina. Question for you on nutrition. Can you uh, talk about... Uh, the odds of getting um, heavy metal or specifically mercury uh, poisoning or some degree of exposure from uh, canned fish products. I've been researching this heavily on the Internet, and obviously, like 
get on the WebMD, it's like a deep hole of um, doom as soon as you start reading anything about uh, mercury and fish. Can you talk about uh, the odds, I guess, of exposure, but then also whether this is a health risk that we need to be aware of, uh, specifically putting it up as a uh, survival food source? Thank you very much. Hope you have a good day. Bye. So here's the deal. Sometimes people know a thing, and that causes them to assume another thing that seems logical that's not true. And because of that second thing they've assumed, they're wrong, but they believe they're right. And here's how that works with, with mercury. Most people are aware of the fact that your larger predator fish that live longer, that eat lots of other fish, tend to bioaccumulate mercury. It's a fancy way of saying they have more mercury uh, in their bodies than smaller fish that live on plankton and what have you. And it's actually because it's the plankton and the seaweeds and stuff like that that do most of the mercury absorption. So then little fish, little zooplankton, eats little phytoplankton, right? And uh, zooplankton is an animal plankton, and the uh, phytoplankton is a, a vegetable plankton, for lack of a better term. So it accumulates a little bit of mercury. Then a little bitty fish eats that, and it accumulates the same mercury. And then a little bit bigger fish eats that, and it accumulates that mercury, but it eats a bunch of those. So it gets a bunch more mercury. Then the next size fish up eats it, and then you got a great big thing like a, a king mackerel or a bluefin tuna swimming around eating those you know, mid-sized fish in massive quantities. So what you end up with is more mercury the higher up the food chain and the longer the fish go. And the fish have a hard time getting rid of the mercury. They don't do it. They, they, they tend to hold on to it for a long time, maybe even forever. Plus, they're con see, that's the other thing. They're constantly eating the same thing. You're not constantly eating the same thing. So because of all this bioaccumulation talk, what people tend to extrapolate is that once you consume mercury, that mercury stays in your body forever and you can't get rid of it. That is not true. Our bodies ex excrete mercury. We have an entire system that eliminates toxins in our body that gets rid of mercury. It can only do it so fast, and you can eat too much fish and put too much mercury in your body. And the more you have, the harder it gets for your body to eliminate it. And if your level gets high enough, then there are drugs and medical procedures that can actually lower it that need to be used. So it is a thing, and it can happen. So on my you know scale where I said my CWD concern for it is like a 2, My concern with mercury and fish is anywhere from about a 5 to a 90, depending on what you eat and how often you eat it. If you live on yellowfin tuna, my concern is a 90. If you eat yellowfin tuna once a month, my concern is about a 6, depending on what else you eat. If you eat fish a couple times a week, but your primary fish are salmon and the things lower on the scale, my concern is about a six or a seven again. Because we've done, we got enough research that we know when we test people that way that they tend not to show high levels of mercury. If you're really worried about it, you can have your mercury levels tested. But what you don't want to do is high-order predator fish multiple times a week. My personal rule for myself 
is the fish that are considered high in mercury. Again, we're talking about things like king mackerel, uh, yellowfin, bluefin, tuna, stuff like that. Uh, I'm going to consume that no more than about once a month. I'm comfortable that my body being in good health and uh, not being in a high-risk group like pregnant woman or something like that, no problem. And I will eat lower-order um, fish, again, salmon down, you know, once a week. But I would eat it up to about three times a week. I just don't eat it that much. Not because I'm afraid of it, but I would keep my meals, you know, two or less a week would be the recommended. But if I eat three one week and two the next week and one the next week and three the week after that and then none for a week, I wouldn't get all wrapped up about it. And unless you're eating fish multiple times a week of lower order or multiple times a month of higher order, I would file that in the cabinet of I don't have time to give a shit. There are, yet you are more likely to experience death by garbage truck than mercury poisoning unless you, you almost have to go out of your way in fish consumption. And one thing you do need to know, the mercury in fish doesn't go away just because you go to fresh water. So knowing the mercury levels of the fish, a fish that you're, you're harvesting uh, from local water sources is something that you want to check into as well. But don't, don't go down the WebMD rabbit hole. Like, if you want to be told that any given behavior is going to kill you, within 20 minutes of looking for it online, you're going to find that, you know, whatever it is will kill you. Eating celery will kill you. Eating spinach will kill you. And you can make yourself sick on spinach if you eat too much of it. You really can. But you're probably not going to unless you try. And fish isn't quite there. But for most people on average diets, it's it's close. Now, the person I worry about is the person who eats tuna fish sandwiches every day. That's where I start getting concerned. So unless you're doing that, I wouldn't worry too much. Again, just keep the consumption of your larger order predator fish down. And if you Google um, mercury levels in fish, you'll find lists and you'll see. And if you when you get to salmon, anything below that, that's your stuff you can have once or twice a week. Um, even more if you really want to, but I would say once or twice a week. Anything above that, keep that to about once or twice a month, and you're good. Let's take another one. Jack, would you sous vide turkey? Um, background is my wife and I normally do the turkey for Thanksgiving. This year we're traveling uh, by car. So um, I was thinking, you know, the most years I guess we put it on the big green egg, and, you know, it's kind of a barbecue slash smoker, and it's the best way. It's been awesome. We, I've smoked it purely once in a different thing, and I fried it once. And both of those were good, and I've done the bag and everything. But anyways, the best way seems to be the big green egg. But this year we're traveling, so I'm thinking I could definitely bring my sous vide a uh, little cooker with me and try that. looks like the instructions I found is um, – I think 150 degrees for 24 hours and then 30 to 40 minutes in the oven to brown it. Um, so anyways, I'm thinking about it and uh, just thought I'd get a second opinion because, uh, you know, don't want to ruin Thanksgiving. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye. Let me start out with this. While I have come to literally adore my sous vide circulator, for every form of red meat, it has ever had the good fortune to be part of cooking. 
and to a large degree any piece of pork that's ever gone in there. Despite the fact that some people seem to love poultry done in sous vide, even with chicken and cooking individual parts, I have been largely underwhelmed. And maybe I just haven't run the damn thing long enough or the right temperature. I don't know. I can crack the code. But I have found I would rather cook a chicken on the grill than in the sous vide cooker. Turkey is a giant chicken. It's what it is. It's a giant chicken. Um, so would I sous vide a turkey? Probably. I would probably try it. And 24 hours, might get the damn thing done right. 150 degrees? I'm not so sure about. This is one of the problems of cooking turkeys whole in the first place. You have two entirely, you have multiple cuts of meat on a turkey, just like any any animal. But you got two entirely different worlds in white and dark meat, and what temperature they should be cooked to. And yeah, maybe I guess I don't know. Um, but what I won't do, and I wouldn't do if I were you, do not, do not, do not, do not, do not sous vide your first turkey for Thanksgiving. Do not do anything with a turkey that you have never done before for Thanksgiving. And if you're like, Jack, but my mother-in-law's coming and I'm making the first turkey I've ever made in my life for Thanksgiving. Make a turkey this week. <laughs> Get some turkey experience. Follow the basic procedures and make one this week. Like, Or buy a pre-cooked turkey. Like, Thanksgiving's a lot of pressure. Especially when it's not just you and your wife. Like when you have family coming or you're bringing the turkey or whatever. Huh. Don't. Now, my view is you have a way that you make turkey that you think is sublime. Make the damn turkey that way and it'll warm up just fine. Now, what I would do, what I would do is I would absolutely cook turkey. And use a sous vide cooker and a wrapped turkey in a giant tub of water to bring the turkey to a beautiful serving temperature. But that damn turkey would be cooked, and I would be confident in that turkey before it left my house. Um, I am not a fan of when you got people coming over dependent on you for something experimenting. I love to experiment. You guys know me. I will. I will waste some money to find out if something works. But I would not sous vide turkey. Not for Thanksgiving. And if I did sous vide turkey, I would part it out. And I think that you'd probably get a better result. Even if you did the whole turkey into one big sous vide tub. So you have a breast half, a breast half, a leg quarter, and a leg quarter, things like that. I will give you one of my big tips for turkey day, though. I find that With few exceptions, there are more dark meat eaters than there are white meat eaters. And generally, wherever you get your turkey, you can get some extra drumsticks or some extra thighs or both. And cooking some extra dark meat is probably a good idea. It really is. Now, I do know one family. For some reason, it's the exact opposite. But usually there's fights. You know, if the turkey's marginal on being big enough, there's fights over the thigh meat and the drumstick meat. And my last little tip, tip on turkey is I would rather serve my turkey lukewarm and have a line to pop it in the microwave for 30 minutes than cut into a piece of turkey that's too hot and have all those juices run out and ruin it. You don't need your turkey steaming hot when you're carving it, and if it is, you shouldn't be doing it. 
Give it time to cool down. With that, let's take another one. This one on uh, lighting options. And I'm going to try to clean this one up, but there's some garbled parts of it. But I think it's important enough or informational enough that I wanted to include it. Hey, Jack. This is Todd from the uh, great northern coastal state of Texas. Uh, give me a call about your lighting um, for indoor hydroponics or aquaponics or just plain plant starting, plant growing, propagation. Um, I have a very large background in both, in, in all three of those actually, uh, with medical plants as well as fruits, vegetables, you name it, um, as well as planted aquarium. Um, and what I do for all of mine as far as my planted aquarium show and plants is four foot pH LED replacement. Um, they're made by a company called Brilla Hood, B-R-I-L-L-A-H-O-O-D, um, and it's found on Amazon, and they're incredibly good price, and they're direct wire, so you do not need ballast or anything like that. You can pick up some cheap little tombstones and mount with a screw of off of Amazon as well. You hardwire them, get a junction box, and a decent um, short extension cord to use as a power source, and you mount it with some plywood, you dress it up put some pine around the edge and make it pretty like I did on my home aquarium. Um, these things are 5,000 K and they grow like, like not, and the plants grow like crazy. They're dirt cheap to purchase and then you can configure them to whatever size and shape you want them to be as far as shelves, uh, planting boxes, um, indoor tents, you name it. Um, but they're an awesome thing to look into. I, I figured I'd make that suggestion. All right, have a great day, and uh, thank you for everything you've brought to my life. I can't possibly put into words the changes that you have instilled in me. Thank you. So I think I did do a pretty good job of leveling that out, and I think I got most of it. I think the, the company name he spelled was uh, Brillahood, B-R-I-L-L-A-H-O-D is what he spelled. However, I did not find that. No such company exists. I found a B-R-I-L-L-I hood, Brilla hood. And I think I found the exact lights he's talking about. And they are direct wire, like he said. And so you'd have to have a little electrical knowledge on how to, to wire them up. But it's not hard. Additionally, though, I found lights that sure seem like they're the same lights in these fixtures that include the lights. And they would cost less to a pair of them. And my view is that the reason you might use those instead of direct wiring is if you already have T8 fixtures. So they're basically a T8 replacement light tube that would go in any T8 light fixture that is for four-foot T8 light. And then there also may be people that just are not comfortable doing the basic wiring, even though it's easy. And if you have easy access to some T8 fixtures, you might want to consider these bulbs. Now, I don't know if the bulbs are exactly the same. They can't be far off. They're both the, the same Kelvin and, and what have you. Well, the ones he said are 36-watt advertised, and the ones are 40-watt equivalents that are the tubes only. But it would be hard for me to believe they would put a different tube inside their fixture than they would sell. That doesn't make a lot of sense from economy of scale. Uh, so you might want to do some more looking into it, but I do have links to both of these. And I would say to the caller, 
it'd be really neat if you did a simple YouTube video of how you have this stuff wired up and showed the equipment so I know I'm right and so other people could see how it's done. And once they see how it's done, they might be more comfortable doing it too. Again, the, 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 the company I found was Brillahood with B-R-I-L-L-I-H-O-O-D. Uh, now let me tell you what the caller did right, even though there was some garbling there. Number one, I don't blame the, the caller for it being garbled, and I do think I did a pretty good job of cleaning it up. Because how would you know? How would you know that your call, call is garbled? There's no one to tell you. It could just be a bad cell or something like that and having some in and out. But one thing you shouldn't do when you make a call um, is use your speakerphone option. Put the phone up to your ear like you're talking to somebody old school. And that way you don't, because what happens is people move their mouth away from the mic and back to the microphone and away from the microphone and back. And they don't even realize they're doing it because their hand's moving back and forth. Um, that's one thing that happens uh, chronically. And then some phones just aren't as clear on speaker as they are when you're using them normal. Uh, the other thing is I, I know sometimes probably a Bluetooth uh, headset is probably clearer. But sometimes it's not. And again, there's no way to know. So I, I'd shy away from that. Um, if you ever make me a call and you think, that was a good call. I can't believe that jerk didn't put it on the air. Try calling back. Sometimes I get a call. It's so garbled. I can't use it. So I thought I'd just you know point those things out. But that's a good option. And, and I appreciate it. Uh, we got one more. This is on uh, training cats. Something uh, I've done quite a bit of. And it's not as hard as people think. But there can be some challenges. Here's an example of one of them. Hi, Jack. Aaron from Brooklyn, New York here. Question. My wife and I recently adopted a baby kitten, and uh, the kitten wants to go wherever it wants to go, and we don't want it going on the dining room table or climbing us like a tree. So I got out the little spray bottle of water and tried doing corrective uh, measures with that right after that behavior was given. I got a defective cat. It likes water. Uh, any other helpful hints or trips, ticks, trips? Helpful hints for tricks that I could do. Thank you so much. Have a great day. So it's a challenge. I, I've, I know one other cat like this. My son has a cat named Cooper. And Cooper doesn't really like being sprayed with water, but will just like start eating the water or whatever and not stop whatever behavior he's engaged in. So um, one thing you might try is just stopping doing it for a while. Sometimes kittens... Um, don't really freak out about water, but when they, they get a little older, if they get hit with water, they tend to then be freaked out by it, as long as it's not constant when they're kittens so that they don't become acclimated. So that might be just a stop. Before you stop, I want to give you a suggestion. Put about two teaspoons, two, I'm sorry, two tablespoons to a standard-sized spray bottle of white vinegar in the water. Don't spray your cat in the eyes. It will burn a little bit if you do. But do spray them like... In the chest, in the mouth area, right below, so that they get that in the nose. A lot of cats that, you know, a lot of the rare cats that will not run from water, the vinegar will put them off. It just, now it's, it smells bad. I don't like it. Uh, also understand, even with that, kittens, their sensitivity is lower to everything. They have a less of it. Everything in the, the, the animal's body is developing not just its size and its speed, right? It, it doesn't have the sight that it will as an adult. It doesn't have the sense of smell, of touch, of taste, uh, the hyper ability to hear. Like all of that actually in the first year of a kitten's life 
is developing along and growing and getting more powerful. So if it doesn't work with the vinegar, just don't use it at all. Because that's what my kid did to his cat. And that cat is impervious now. He doesn't like it anymore, but he doesn't give a damn. So if you quit doing it and you try some other method, and when that cat's more like 9, 10, 11 months old, it gets up on the couch or wherever you don't want it, and you spray it, it may haul ass. But if you keep doing it, I guarantee you it won't. Um, but try the vinegar first. Then the next thing is if that's not going to work and we want to work on training now or if it never comes back around to where it works, what can we do? We can resort to the butt tap. No, bad cat and a little swat on the butt. Don't ever do it hard enough that it really hurts, but hard enough that it's uncomfortable. The, with cats particularly, though, there are two problems with this. I'm not big on hitting an animal to begin with. I do believe there's a place for physical corrective action, uh, leash training with a dog and a, a choker and a quick jerk and a no correction, and I will use my hands on a dog. I'll use more of a bite on the neck, which is a simple pinch, not enough to really hurt, but enough that the canine instinct kicks in. But I will pop an ass if I have to, if I feel like that is the best thing for it, but I don't want to actually inflict pain on the animal and because I don't want to break trust with the animal. I want that animal to always trust me. And I also know that inflicting serious pain on an animal doesn't do nothing to actually develop that trust and that bond. People do it with dogs because you get away with it. The bond a dog has is so strong, that dog will tolerate abuse or perceived abuse, even if it's not abusive. The trust bond with a cat is not the same. And you can break that trust. And once you've broken trust, you know, it's really hard to get back from a cat. So you got to be really careful with that. So something else that that cat doesn't like. Get an air horn. You know, like the ones people used to heckle people in a crowd, ah! right? Get an air horn. When a cat jumps up on the table, as soon as it jumps on the table, ah! scare the shit out of it. Every time the cat jumps up on the table, honk, or find some loud noise. And if it scares the cat and the cat jumps down, try because the other part of the trust breaking, if the trust breaking doesn't happen, and the cat learns, the human doesn't like it when I get on the table. So the human pops me on the butt, pushes me down, yells at me, whatever. What the cat then determines is, in order to be on the table, I have to outsmart the human. Where the dog is like, see, that's why dogs are easy to train. Dogs and cats are not more difficult to train. The dog is so has such a desire to please the human that human concepts work with dogs. The cat doesn't give a shit if you're pleased. There's a trust bond. I believe a cat can love its keeper. I really do. Full on love. But they express it differently than a dog. And they don't care if you're satisfied. They care that they get away with what they want to do. So if the cat connects you to the correction in behavior, the cat will get on the top of the table when you're not around or when you're not looking. And the cat will even get good at, like, you ever watch a cat and he hears a noise, you see its ears turn all the way backwards and twitch? They can hear, buddy, way better than you ever will. And they'll get to know, here he comes. And they'll sleek off of that table and you won't ever know they were there. They'll sleep down onto the chair where they're hidden and they know you can't see them. That's what they'll do. 
because it's what cats do. So the problem you have is if you become connected to the correction, you're training the cat to avoid you detecting it versus not to do it. The other thing cats don't like is certain textures. So one of the things that you might do is take the whole tabletop and cover it with crumpled aluminum foil. You might have a cat that's defective that likes aluminum foil. I don't know. But what you can do is take something, anything, that that cat finds objectionable to the way it feels on its feet and cover that. And if that cat gets up there three or four times and it's always that way, that cat then develops a disassociation with that. So your cat is going on the table for two reasons. One, it wants to be elevated. <coughs> and two, it likes the way the table feels. Here's the day, For example, my I have two outdoor cats, and my grandson has some bases, like little, they're just plastic white, rubber white bases like for baseball. You know, three of them are in a square and one of them that's in a home plate shape. And he puts them out and he hits his ball and he runs around the bases and all. And when he puts those bases out there, our one cat, Fox, will go sit on it. Why does he sit on it? Because it's smooth and it's cool and it feels good. So eliminate the compelling texture. If you have your cat, you, know, you have houseplants, your cat ever starts taking a dump in your, and, and peeing and using your houseplants as a litter box, lava rocks. They hate the way lava rocks. Just use lava rocks as mulch and they'll stop. They're going in there because you have nice soft mulch and nice soft dirt. It feels nice and that's where they want to be. So change the texture. And then the other thing is give the cat some place that it can be a cat. Get, you know, buy or build a cat tree. And then, you know, train the cat that that's the cat's cat tree. Do that with things like rub um, catnip on it. Just rub catnip on it. Don't, see, cats get really excited about catnip for about like 37 seconds and they don't care anymore. So you rub a little bit on there and then it starts to develop an affinity. So once a week, rub some catnip on there and put the cat on it. So it starts to, it starts to mark, it starts to put its own smells on there. A good catcher has multiple different textures. It can let the cat get up high where it wants to be. It can let the cat use its claws. It can let the cat be a cat. And a lot of times you might need two of them. One in kind of a busy area and one of them in a secluded area of the house. And then understand, you've brought an animal in your house that's capable of jumping six feet vertical leaps or more uh, that can get up on top of or behind of or in almost anything. And there's some levels of cat behavior that you're going to have to accept when you have an inside cat. But those are my, that's my advice on, on cat training 101. Uh, we've had pretty good luck with our cats over the years, both indoor, outdoor, and, uh, indoor slash outdoor cats. We've had, uh, we've had two indoor outdoor cats, as in cats that go in and out. We've had one 100% indoor cat, and we now have two, one, I would call them 99% outdoor cats. Uh, we do bring them in on really, really cold nights, and sometimes in the summer we let them come in for a few hours during the heat of the day. But they are they live outside. They have jobs to do. They are mouser, ratter, catters. Anyway, with that, we've wrapped up another episode. Hope you enjoyed this one. If you'd like to be on a show like this, you know how to do it. Call the Think Line, 866-65-THINK, or use the speak pipe. And uh, let me know your opinion on whether or not we should maintain that 800 number. Is it worth the 50 bucks, 50, 60 bucks a month I spend on it? Um, to do four shows, three to four shows a month, 
or if you are a speak if you are a, a thinkline user would you use the speak pipe it was your only option would it would it make you less likely to participate i guess is what i'm asking uh, cuz it definitely is a less expensive option that is available also remember we do have the msb on sale discount code turkey you got 2 days left well no you got all weekend i'm running it till monday close the business monday but it's running out right so get your turkey day sale the week before turkey day That's why I did it, so you can spend your time uh, next week uh, doing other sales and Black Friday shopping and arguing with your relatives and cooking turkeys uh, instead of uh, worry about my sale. But this is a hell of a deal, 30 bucks. And then the other one is make sure you consider doing your online shopping at T-Spaz. Hey, man, uh, you know, they call it Black Friday the day after Thanksgiving, and they call Monday when you go back to work, Cyber Monday, because everybody goes back to work and shops online. Um, but I have found that people do a hell of a lot of Black Friday shopping online. So whenever you're doing your online shopping, consider going to tspaz.com first. Uh, busiest shopping time of the year is coming up. You use tspaz, you help us no matter what you buy. And you'll find all the items that I recommend. You can tell my granddaughter's home, by the way. Uh, you can find all the ad- items that I recommend and have reviewed on Amazon at tspaz.com. Yesterday I bought you the remote control um, switches for your electrical outlets, five different ends and a little remote, and you can turn things on and off like Christmas lights. And I mentioned that today I was going to bring you my favorite timer. Because sometimes, like the reason we do the remote control for our Christmas tree lights and stuff inside, well, we pretty much want them to go out when we go to bed, not when they decide to. So we use the remote control. Like our outdoor Christmas lights, or my fish tank lights, or my lights for my plants, or I have some of my aquaponic systems where the pumps don't need to run 24-7. I use a timer for that. And guys, have you ever seen the uh, the printer beatdown scene in Office Space? If you haven't, there's a link in the review today. Go watch it. It's not safe for work, by the way, because of the rap song that's on during it. I hate timers almost as much as I hate printers. Network printers, for God's sakes. 1990s network printers, for God's sakes. I mean, I don't know how they can make something so simple so complicated. Well, Sentry has a timer. They're about nine bucks a piece, called the 24-hour mechanical timer. It is the easiest dadgone mechanical timer I have ever seen to use in my life. It works like this: you plug it in an outlet, and you plug whatever you want plugged into it. Most of them do work that way. It's got a dial: one to twelve daytime and one to twelve nighttime. The dark, the nighttime one is dark, and the daytime one is white. Really easy to figure out which one is which. It doesn't even matter, because if you think it's wrong, it'll still work. And here's what I mean. Every hour has four little pins. Each pin represents 15 minutes. If you want something to run for the whole hour, you push all four of those pins down. If you want it to not run at all during that hour, you put none of the pins down. If you want it to run for 15 minutes during that hour, whichever 15 minutes you want, you push that pin down. I have a uh, an air pump I don't use anymore, but when I tried to put a pond in, Big, powerful uh, aeration system. It uses a lot of energy and it's loud. Uh, I set it to run 15 minutes every two hours. And it was every other hour, just push one pin down. And it would kick on and off all day long. You can set up anything you want. Your only limitation is 15-minute increments, which is not a limitation in any practical application. Uh, you can buy them by the two-pack. They cost even less. I just got four of them. Uh, some fish tanks I don't have on timers yet are going to go on them, and I've got one for my son, and i got one for outdoor. Like, I will always use this until somebody comes up with something better. Oh, yeah, a little switch on the side. This just is on. 
So let's say the thing's off and you want it on. You just flip that switch. You don't have to turn the timer and then have to reset it and all that. Easiest damn timer. Every timer should be this timer. You don't need a degree in engineering or programming to use it. Anybody can use it. Check it out. Century 24-hour mechanical timer. If you're putting in Christmas lights for Christmas season, you want this timer. You don't want any other timer, I promise you. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. Time for our song of the day. Um, of a song today by Billy Joel. And this is the Music Industry Business Music Week. So these are all songs about the music industry one way or another. This one's called Famous Last Words. It was the last song on his last real studio album. He did put out another album about 10 years later, but it was all like classical music on a piano with some other guy accompanying him or something like that. This was the last album today Billy Joel did where he did you know, studio music new songs. He's done some greatest hits and lives and stuff like that, but he's never done another one of these, and this was his song ending it. It was his My Way from Frank Sinatra, except that it didn't revitalize his career. He pretty much walked away from making albums after this. And the reason, and what he was saying in the song, is he's kind of running about out of ideas for the formulaic music that you make albums with. And this was in the early 90s this came out. And... To me, this song has a delicious irony in it. This song was written at the end of an era where the problem that he was pointing out existed. If you're a musician today, you can do whatever the hell you want. And if you're a musician that already made it big, like a Billy Joel, in the conventional record company space, and you take your name and your credibility in the social media, and publish your music on whatever platform you want, you can do whatever the hell you want and still reach millions of people. And the person that will never make it in the record industry can build the same type of following online. So I I, I had a couple songs I could pick from today because John gave me more than enough for the week. I chose this one because I think the real lesson is The problem Joel was pointing out, limits on his credibility and what he can do, doesn't exist anymore. We live in a new era where you can do anything you want. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
That's why.